Hello and friends. Hey everybody. Welcome back to Access. My name is Timothy and I'm happy to be studying through the scriptures with you today. When was the last time you made a promise? When was the last time you broke a promise? Have you ever experienced somebody breaking a promise that they made to you? And why is it that a broken promise toward us seems more important than when we break a promise that we've made? Every year, millions of people participate in this tradition of making a New Year's resolution. Have you done that? Now, a resolution, it's not quite the same as a promise, necessarily. It's simply this um, a firm decision to do or not do something. And it carries the notion of being very determined to see something through. Now, in order to follow through with that firm decision, it would probably be helpful to set some goals to help aid in carrying out that decision. Now, some have even gone as far as giving themselves consequences to pay for their failures when they break their New Year's resolution, you know, like a week later. <laughs> and when people fail to stick to their own decision, it seems pretty easy for them to just get over it and move on with life, right? But a promise goes a little bit deeper than simply making a decision. See, when we make a, a promise, you're making a declaration and you're giving assurance that you're going to do what you said you were going to do. So when we break our promises, we, we pretty much break our word of assurance and we break our trust. Now, how difficult is that? To have confidence in or, or to come into agreement with somebody that, that doesn't keep their word. You know, someone who tends to break their promises. It's not impossible, but it definitely is difficult. I'd like to share a short personal story. About 13 years ago this month, it was March 2008. I remember struggling with myself to confess to Beverly that I've been having thoughts. And I explained my inclinations toward her. And they weren't, they weren't you know, just mere feelings. But they were real thoughts, and I shared my intentions with her. Immediately, she made it very clear to me that she did not have feelings for me. <laughs> and for almost a year, she faithfully made certain that I was well aware that she did not have feelings for me. And we came to agreement that we were simply friends. I was a friend who had feelings for a friend that didn't share that with me. <laughs> and we spent the rest of that year being the best of friends. Although, every now and then, you know, Bev, she'd check in with me about my feelings and my inclinations towards her. And I'd, I'd let her know that, you know, nothing's changed on my end. And, and she made sure that I knew nothing changed on her end. And I spent most of that year as her friend, just providing assurance that I had only the purest of intentions. I never tried to convince her that we, we would be perfect together. You know, I never pushed or manipulated her into choosing me back. I simply let her know where I stood and what I was willing to do, and I would patiently wait for her. At one point, she seemed to finally start entertaining the thought of my big decision. She asked me, so what would it look like to be married to you? It kind of caught me off guard. I was bubbling with happiness that she was even asking that, but I tried to play it cool and, you know, conceal my excitement. You know, I could have shared all these fantastic dreams and ideations for us by, by painting a picture of this dream life. 
But instead, I, I decided to just get honest. And I told her, well, my commitment is to work at our marriage, no matter what comes our way. And I would commit to work at being the best husband. Long story short, December of that year, we were engaged. We were now in agreement that we were friends who were promised to be married. So I made the decision to spend my future alongside Beverly as her husband. But I needed to inform her of that decision that I made, you know, since it would only become a reality if she agreed. And a few months later, we exchanged our promises, our vows, and, and signed a contractual document as we entered into a covenant marriage relationship. Our study today is called Covenants and Curses. If you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. Now let's get started. Covenants and Curses. Today, we're going to be exploring when God introduced covenants and the importance of a covenant. We'll see how he's faithful to his promises. And we'll grow our understanding of what it means to walk in agreement with him. Today, my best friend, my wife Beverly, will be reading from Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, and through to the end of chapter 9 from the complete Jewish Bible. Noach built an altar to Adonai. Then he took from every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Adonai smelled the sweet aroma, and Adonai said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, since the imaginings of a person's heart are evil from his youth, nor will I ever again destroy all living things as I have done. So long as the earth exists, sowing time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night, will not cease. Chapter 9 God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will be upon every wild animal, every bird in the air, every creature populating the ground, and all the fish in the sea. They have been handed over to you. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants before, so now I give you everything. Only flesh with its life, which is its blood, you are not to eat. I will certainly demand an accounting for the blood of your lives. I will demand it from every animal and from every human being. I will demand from every human being an accounting for the life of his fellow human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by a human being will his own blood be shed. For God made human beings in his image. And you people, be fruitful, multiply, swarm on the earth, and multiply on it. God spoke to Noah and his sons with him. He said, As for me, I am herewith establishing my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every wild animal with you, all going out of the ark, every animal on earth. I will establish my covenant with you, that never again will all living things be destroyed by the waters of a flood, and there will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God added, Here is the sign of the covenant I am making between myself and you, and every living creature with you, for all generations to come. I am putting my rainbow in the cloud, it will be there as a sign of the covenant between myself and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow is seen in the cloud, I will remember my covenant which is between myself and you and every living creature of any kind, and the water will never again become a flood to destroy all living beings. The rainbow will be in the cloud, so that when I look at it, I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of any kind on the earth. 
God said to Noach, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between myself and every living creature on the earth. The sons of Noach who went out from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noach, and the whole earth was populated by them. Noach, a farmer, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank so much of the wine that he got drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father shamefully exposed, went out and told his two brothers. Shem and Japheth took a cloak, put it over both their shoulders, and walked backward, went in, and covered their naked father. Their faces were turned away, so that they did not see their father lying there, shamefully exposed. When Noach awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, he will be a servant of servants to his brothers. Then he said, Blessed be Adonai, the god of Shem, Canaan will be their servant. May God enlarge Japheth, he will live in the tents of Shem, but Canaan will be their servant. After the flood, Noach lived 350 years. In all, Noach lived 950 years. Then he died. At the end of Genesis chapter 8, we see that after disembarking the ark, Noach builds this altar as an act of worship to God for sparing him and his family. We see that God accepts the offering, and in his heart, he decides never to curse the ground, nor destroy all living things with a flood. And then God reestablishes this cycle of seasons, however with many alterations from this catastrophic interruption. And this begins a story of the regeneration and the reordering of society, and we immediately see this vast difference between the old world before the flood and the new post-flood world, here in Genesis 9. God begins to lay out the new ground rules for mankind and how they're supposed to like interact with this new post-flood world. You see, before, animals, they were once fearless and trusting and, and in willing subjection to man before the flood. And now God has ordained man's dominion over the animals would be by force if necessary. These very same animals that had appeared before Adam to be named, uh, they were so calm and tame at that time, now they would be totally terrified of man. Verse 3 tells us that meat was no longer uh, prohibited as food for man. Remember, up to this point, plant life was the only food available to man and the animals, provided by God. And now this animal flesh, it was somehow a approved source of nutrition, but it wasn't without restrictions. Man was allowed to eat the flesh of the animal, but not the flesh with blood still in it. See, man was not to eat the blood. What was the reason for this? Well, the blood was where the life was contained. Blood was to be used only for divine sacrifice and never for human consumption. In verse 5, God is speaking to Noah and his sons, telling them, I will certainly demand an accounting for the blood of your lives. I will demand it from every animal and from every human being. I'll demand it from every human being, an accounting for the life of his fellow human being. So here, God is handing over to mankind the duty of bringing forth the punishment for homicide. Remember the first homicide we read about in scripture? It's found here in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain ends up murdering his brother, Hevel. The mere separation from God was a sufficient punishment for Cain, but this was no longer the case. It was God that introduced this death penalty 
by instructing that any man who took another man's life would himself be killed by men. Here we find God establishing the principle for earthly government. The civil law, it was created when, when the Lord delegated some of his authority to human beings. So all these instructions are actually part of God's blessing over Noah and his sons. And he recommissions them as well, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Sound familiar? After pronouncing these blessings over Noah and his sons, in verse 8, God made a covenant. And we're going to be learning more about the important nature of covenants when we study Abraham. But for now, just recognize that this particular covenant was a contract in the form of a promise. In this case, it was said to be between God and Noah, but it was also a promise from, from God to all the living creatures. So Noah was simply the representative agent of all new life on the planet. And this particular covenant or contract was unilateral. That meant that the contract did not depend on man's response or man's behavior. This was all on God. It's important to note that this was the very first covenant that God made with man. And God's covenant promise was this, that he would never again destroy the whole world and everything in it by a flood. <laughs> Of course, that leaves open just about all the other possible ways of destruction, just not a global flood. <laughs> In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 reads, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some people think of slowness. On the contrary, he is patient with you. For it is not his purpose that anyone should be destroyed, but that everyone should turn from his sins. However, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will melt and disintegrate, and the earth and everything in it will be burned up. The Bible clearly states that there will be this future global judgment, but next time by fire, not water. While God's establishing this covenant between him and all the living things for generations to come, he puts his rainbow in the cloud as a sign of the covenant. It says in verse 15 that when God looked upon the rainbow, uh, he, he would remember the covenant that he had made between himself and the earth. Now, this reference to God's memory, this is a figurative statement. Okay, God's not man. He doesn't forget. The Hebrew word used here for remember is sakar. And sakar means to call to mind and, and then lead toward action. So when God sees this rainbow and remembers, he's not just remembering that he made a promise. No, he's, he's remembering the object of, of who he made those promises to. So all living things are on his mind. And what is he doing? What is the action that he's doing? Well, he's being faithful to keep his promise. Take a moment to imagine what it must have been like for Noah and his sons and all those generations after him with the flood still relatively fresh in their minds. And every time that it rained, could you imagine the anxiety you'd experience just waiting for that rain to stop? But then you look up in the sky and, and then the clouds part and you see this brilliant rainbow hanging up there in the sky and you remember God's promises. Imagine how reassuring that must have been for them. 
I think it might do us all some good to remember that this rainbow that's so common to us was in fact meant as a sign from God. That hasn't changed just because a few thousand years have passed from Noah to our day. Now there's no one special word for rainbow in Hebrew. The word that's used there is keshef, which simply means bow, like as in a bow and arrow. So God says that he's putting his keshef in the cloud. I appreciate the commentary from John Gill's exposition of the entire Bible, where he says, Though it is a bow, yet without arrows, and is not turned downwards towards the earth, but upwards towards heaven, and so is a token of mercy and kindness, not of wrath and anger. Isn't that beautiful? This covenant that God is establishing is a covenant of grace. It's completely on him. It's unilateral. It doesn't depend on us. This rainbow that is up in the sky, it, it encompasses all humanity, all living things, both, both good and evil, both clean and unclean. This arc in the sky spanning over all living things, it's actually a symbol of Messiah Yeshua himself. In John 3.16, it said that God loved the whole world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the covenant of grace right there. And we see it here, the very first covenant in all of scripture, pointing to the Christ, the promised Messiah. The sacrifice of Yeshua on the cross and his blood that spilled out covered over all the sins of all humanity of all time. So maybe the next time you see a rainbow in the sky, why not throw your hands up in praise to God for his grace and his mercy and his, his patience and his kindness towards us. Amen? The most common version of Noah and the flood, the telling of the story, it's almost like a children's story, right? Um, God's speaks to this man, Noah, and says, I'm going to destroy the earth, but I want you to be saved. So why don't you build a boat, a boat that's going to float, and then um, you get a bunch of animals, and it's like a floating zoo. And then you watch what God is going to do. And then the rains come down, and the floods come up, and 40 days and 40 nights. And then God keeps a promise, and he puts a rainbow up in the sky. The end. But that's not the end of the story. That's the children's version. We're going to continue on here in verse 18, where we're introduced to Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Every human being alive today comes from these three distinct lines of descendants from Noah. And now we come to the part of the story that's left out of the children's version in verse 20. This story is about Noah planting a vineyard and making wine and getting drunk. And he crawls inside his tent and he falls asleep. And he's just like totally naked. Now, there are going to be some people that argue, well, you know, maybe Noah um, didn't know what he was doing and he accidentally got drunk. Um, yeah, that would be highly unlikely. Come on, this guy's been alive for like centuries already. So he knew full well the, the result of fermenting grapes and, and drinking those results, right? Um, but Noah, he was just a man. He had flaws like you and me. You know, and, and that's what I love about the scriptures. You know, they don't like water it down. They don't sanitize humans and make them these perfect people. Not even the greatest men in the Bible 
are mentioned without including some of their sins and their disagreeable character traits. And the reason for this is very straightforward. Our righteousness before God is not dependent on us. It's dependent on God. It always has been, and it always will be. All that we're told next is that the youngest brother, Ham, entered the tent of Noah and discovered his drunk and naked dad laying there. Then he went out of the tent and told his two older brothers, Shem and Yafet. Now the brothers, they draped a cloak over their shoulders and they walked backward into Noah's tent and they let the garment fall over their father's shameful nakedness without having looked upon it. When Noah woke up, he was so offended and angry and took his wrath out, not so much on Ham, but on Ham's son, Canaan. Noah pronounced a curse upon his grandson, Canaan. But there's more going on here than just the curse. He actually pronounces a blessing over both Shem and Yafet. You know, at first read, when I look at the story, I had to ask the question, why was Noah so angry? So he drank a bit too much and he, and he fell asleep naked. Big deal. What's, what's the big deal? Verse 24 says, When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, believe it or not, there are many people that assert that Ham had somehow sodomized his father. And that was the shameful thing that was done. But that really is just pure speculation. I mean, there's nothing else in the passage that, that would imply that, really. So we have to stop and ask the question, so what was it that Ham did that is written here that helps us understand why Noah was so angry? First of all, Ham dishonored his father. Instead of doing that respectful thing of covering him up and leaving the tent without saying a word, he runs out and tattles on his dad to his brothers. In doing this, he did not honor his father. So the principle is this. Noah deserved to be honored, one, because he was Ham's father, and two, because God had declared Noah as Sadiq. And if God thought that Noah was righteous, that's it. Like, Ham should not have pointed out his father's sin to his brothers. And the second crime that he probably committed was something called Lashon Hara in Hebrew. Lashon Hara means speaking evil of somebody, usually in the form of malicious gossip or slander. And although that might not sound too serious, if you were to study in Leviticus and this disease called Sa'arat, um, it was often mistakenly called leprosy, um, you'll see that this disease was thought to be like this punishment of God and that the crime or the sin, it was usually associated with contracting sa'arat, was uh, Lashon Hara, uh, speaking evil of someone. When Shem and Yafet heard the news from Ham about their father's condition, they discreetly and honorably covered their father's nakedness, and they made every effort to give their father their utmost respect. Now what we have here at the end of the chapter in verses 25 through 27, are the words that contain this powerful prophecy for the future of the entire human race. The futures and the destinies of Noah's three sons and all their descendants was being set in stone by Noah's declarations. First, we see Noah curse his grandson, Canaan, Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan, he will be the servant of servants to his brothers. 
A curse is the opposite of a blessing, and a blessing is a beneficial thing, while a curse is a judgment, right? And people that are born into this line of blessing or into a line of curse, they didn't do anything to merit good fortune or misfortune. Ham had four sons, Cush, Mitzrayim, Putz, and Canaan. Canaan was the one that would have more to do directly with Israel than any of the other descendants of Ham. Ham's descendants became the people that ended up occupying Africa. Cush settled Ethiopia, Mitzrayim settled Egypt, Put settled Libya, and Canaan settled, well, Canaan. And for centuries, these people suffered the fate of subjugation. They would be subject to the lines of Shem and Yafet. And if we take a closer look at all of Ham's descendants, you're going to notice that um, they typically represent enemies of Israel at one time or another. So repeatedly, you're going to find that Israel was either conquering or being conquered by them. The people of Egypt come from Ham, and interestingly, so do the Philistines. Verse 26, Blessed be Adonai, the God of Shem. Canaan will be their servant. After the flood, Noah was pretty much king of the world, right? I mean, he was the head of the only family that existed on the entire earth. His authority was absolute, and he chose to hand over that power to Shem. Now, in this blessing, we get a hint of the relationship between Shem and Adonai God, as God is referred to as the God of Shem. But that's not associated with either Yafet or Ham. A Hebrew's name was a name with meaning. The Hebrew word Shem is most often translated as name. So the name of Shem in English is name. <laughs> and there's this understanding that the name is the character, that it's the reputation of a person. It's interesting that many Jews refer to God when they, instead of saying God's name, they call him Hashem. So even in the prayers where they see the name Adonai written, instead of, they don't want to profane the Lord's name, so they, they will replace it with Hashem, the name. The line of Shem would go on to become the Hebrews, the Arabs, and many of the Asian peoples. Verse 27, May God enlarge Yefet. He will live in the tents of Shem, but Canaan will be their servant. The name Yefet in Hebrew means enlarge or magnify. Yefet was the branch of the family that would grow greatest in population and wealth. He was the ancestor of the Romans, the Greeks, and most of the European peoples, who were also the ancestors of the earliest American colonists. And this blessing that was bestowed upon Yefet was somewhat dependent on his relationship with Shem, because he'd be living in his tents, right? And again, Canaan, or actually all of Ham's descendants, would be subject to the offspring of both Yefet and Shem. By tradition, the firstborn son would normally receive all the authority and, and a bulk of the family's wealth, and then all his siblings would be under his authority. What we see in Noah's blessing, this was a type of firstborn blessing, before it was actually formalized and given that name, firstborn blessing. And of Noah's three sons, two of them got the blessings and one got a curse. Now, in the typical firstborn blessing, the transfer of the family authority and the, and the wealth both went to the same son. But in Noah's firstborn blessing, 
those two were split. So Shem received the authority and Yefet the fruitfulness and the wealth, or the enlargement. Now this was unusual compared to the typical firstborn blessing ceremonies, but we're going to learn more about that as we continue our studies in Genesis. Chapter 9 ends by informing us that Noah lived for another 350 years after the Great Flood, dying at the ripe old age of 950. Some people are grateful for the families that they come from, and they might describe that as a blessing. Some others believe that they're from terribly dysfunctional family lines and, and may describe that as having the worst luck or like being cursed. And still others grew up without a family unit and they might be more free to explore the possible paths of life ahead of them based on their own life experiences. But friends, whatever lot in life you've been dealt, you do not need to be a victim of your situation. It's important to be mindful that there is a spirit of malice and dishonor that was present with Ham, that's still very active today and working hard to smear the good name, the Shem, the reputation of God. And these spiritual forces of darkness take the, the pure and beautiful things of God and twist and distort its meaning, you know, to hinder us from remembering God and his promises and, and his instructions for living. For example, God's rainbow. Okay, God's rainbow in the sky was the first sign of his covenant promise never to destroy life by a flood. And the same symbol is pasted on flags and banners today to declare support for the LGBTQ movement. And it's a movement in its very nature which does not support God's design of one male and one female in covenant marriage with the ability to procreate and follow in obedience God's commission to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, thus perpetuating life for future generations. The movement itself gives way to killing the seed, whether intentional or not. That is the natural scientific result. Creator God loves all living beings. He created them after all, and he does not want to see them destroyed. Scripture tells us that God disciplines those he loves. That means he wants to teach us lessons for living in the way of his kingdom. Friends, Father God has done everything that's necessary to prepare a place for you in his family. And remember that God's covenant of grace is an invitation to relationship with him. He is faithful to his promises and he wants us to learn to trust him. And when we willfully submit ourselves to him, we step into his family line and we're eternally blessed. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. It's a joy to be able to get around God's word and learn more about his love and his promises. And I'm so excited to see where he'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the Shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen.